welcome. This is Lyric Hughes-Hale, Editor-in-Chief of EconView. It's May 17th, 2019, and we're in Chicago. Today, our special guest on the Hale Report is Nariman Safavi, who is a fixture in Chicago. He's not only a commentator for Worldview at WBEZ, he's also an entrepreneur and a cultural maven and quite a fantastic cook. And I understand, Nari, <laughs> that you're the, the cook-off uh, <laughs> champion of WBEZ, the, our local NPR radio station. Is that right? <laughs> exactly. Well, I am, uh, I, I have, uh, won a couple of amateur awards as for cooking and it's been, uh, but I don't really call myself a cook or a chef, but, uh, I'm a culinary enthusiast who happens to have some culinary skills too. That's so. one. And I should add <laughs> yeah. that this ties in to our topic today, which is Iran. Absolutely. Because, uh, Nariman, um, makes wonderful Iranian food. And that's a, a passion I think we both share. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would love to uh, uh, challenge you again for a cook-off at some point in the near future. All right. We'll see who wins, uh, <laughs> wins that one. But I, I, I don't know if I'm going to be uh, up to your level. <laughs> well, I think, you know, this. Uh, my interest in Iran and Iranian culture, I yeah. think, as you know, I, I lived in Iran and I studied Persian at University of Chicago. And I think it highlights the personal engagements we have, even in this time of tension um, with Iran, between Iran and the United States. And we're here today to really discuss what's absolute, what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, mm-hmm. you and I probably share this thing that we have both love of America and love of Iran within us. And it's very hard for us to make that decision. And these moments of tension are particularly difficult for me because it, they try to uh, force you to choose between your two loves. And it is really difficult. And I try to reconcile somehow these things with a message of peace and a message of understanding between the two countries. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. And we're going to try to make this one work again. So, Well, you know, <laughs> what we're talking about is really the culture of Iran, and which has had an influence in the United States. Absolutely. And uh, now we're facing a different kind of period, um, which is in the past week or so, there have been increased tensions. I think it's very fair to say between our two countries. And I thought it was ironic that 16 years ago, George Bush Mm -hmm. on the deck of the Abraham Lincoln declared victory in the Iraq war. And today it's that very same carrier that is um, now in the Persian Gulf and uh, as part of these renewed military moves. But I'm wondering, Nariman, what you think. Is this something real? Is this something that what's going on really? You've been to Iran recently and frequently. What's really going on inside Iran that we don't see here in the U.S.? What's the other side of the story? Well, unfortunately, it seems like uh, once again, the hype about Iran is getting in the way of a lot of very interesting developments that are happening beneath the radar. Uh, Of course, there is a lot of tension right now between U.S. and Iran, and uh, some of it is being artificially made into a hair trigger situation to force Iranian hands to make a mistake. Uh, and engage the United States in a military confrontation. I think that the Rouhani and the Zarif team 
are way too smart to play into that uh, sort of a thing. And they are just basically going to wait it out. Uh, but there is so much more interesting things going on in Iran underneath in the economy. And uh, the developments that were starting to gel after the JCPOA was signed in 2015. The Iran nuclear the agreement. Iran nuclear deal was uh, was signed. In it. And uh, there was starting to have some economic development uh, initiatives were starting to gel and take Iran in a positive direction, though not quite rapidly enough. And, uh, and then Trump uh, administration came in and they decided to renege on everything. And a lot of even American companies ended up being on the losing, coming out on the losing end of this, uh, just like uh, Boeing. You know, they had like a $30 billion contract with Iran that they signed in the last two years of the Obama administration to supply Iran with a new fleet of air, airplanes. And all of a sudden, that contract just was blown out of water and companies here in Chicago basically came out on the losing end. Our local oh, company. Ex local Boeing. company, exactly. So those are kinds of things that were happening. And then also another thing that happened, you know, I think we have talked about this and I wrote this in a little bit a little bit about this in the book that you uh, edited and I uh, was privileged to uh, to be a co-author of. What's uh, next? What's Yale next? Exactly. Yale University Press. And, uh, you know, the Iran's a critical thing about understanding Iran is not about whether it's a religious government or whether it's an oil-based country and, uh, you know, a petroleum country. It's really about understanding its political economy and that it's really at, 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 the, at the intersection of its uh, economic, uh, uh, po economic policy and its political institutions. It is really has the more of a character of a gangster capitalist state, that it's really uh, some of the people who run the most important economic institutions of Iran are really military men, members of the Revolutionary Guard, who are trying to reinvent themselves as business people. Sounds like the PLA in China. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So those are kinds of things. And there is also probably some parallels in Russia too. As well, yeah. Uh, and Russia. So Iran, China, and Russia tend to have some very parallel, similar, analogous kinds of institutions with one another. One has a little bit more of a religious tint. One has a little bit more of a communist tint. And one has a little bit more of a state capitalist uh, tint, you know, I would say in Russia and probably communist, communist too at the same time. Uh, but almost they effectively, the way they end up, these institutions end up working are very, very similar. And uh, so you have this, uh, 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 you have these people who are in Iran, who are in charge of the military power, yet they're also business people. And they, are, they may be at the other end of the military confrontation with the United States. And two years ago, two and a half years ago, they were thinking about how they could benefit from American foreign direct investment in Iran and reinvent themselves as capitalists. And now they're on the other side of the American gun <laughs> looking down the barrel. It's like oh, a, a long time ago, doesn't it? Exactly. But exactly. Now, the sanctions that what I've been hearing is that actually economic conditions because of the sanctions today are worse than they were during the Iran-Iraq war. Inflation is 150% or so. 
um, people, there are issues with food, there's issues yeah. with yeah. medicine, um, there's but, been flooding, significant yeah. flooding in Iran. Flash floods have uh, mm-hmm. taken the lives of about 400 people and about uh, 70,000 housing units have been lost mm-hmm. just in the last few weeks in Iran. Uh, there is also the um, uh, uh, the currency has basically is now worth almost like a third of what it did last year this time right. in terms of hard currency, uh, the Iranian real and Toman. So it's a really people's purchasing power has really diminished and the failures of banks in Iran is really just incredible uh, level of bank failure is going on. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, uh, and those are, and actually another bank would declare the bankruptcy just a couple of days ago, Samaria bank and some really interesting, um, uh, filing of corruption were were submitted to the, uh, at the judiciary, uh, ministry and some uh, very high level, well-connected people, uh, are going to be now prosecuted for corruption and for embezzlement of bank funds. These are the people who have basically access to uh, the central bank and its foreign reserves. So they have access to dollars and euros as they need it. And they had they can basically buy those at the official exchange rate that the government has changed and then they can supposedly use it for their business purposes to make purchases abroad, but they can also black market, black market mm-hmm. it and, and now get it almost at three times what they buy it from the central bank for. And these are, this is this kind of a shell games, financial shell games that are going on amongst the politically well-connected in Iran is uh, basically the regime itself has had it's has has had it with its own well-connected people and it's starting to prosecute some of the people who were supposedly the privileged people within the Islamic Republic. Sounds like a kleptocracy. Exactly. Is what you're it's describing. eating upon itself in a way. And in between there is this President Rouhani who is trying to basically shift the country from a more of a petroleum-based income to a more of a taxation-based income. And the business people at the, who are in the Revolutionary Guard members, they have used their privileges to get tax-exempt statuses for their own companies, their own factories. And uh, so they're almost like uh, businesses, but they don't pay any taxes because they're claiming to be some sort of a not-for-profit affiliated with the government. And he has successfully lobbied to uh, remove that exemption status for a lot of these industries. And he's created a lot of enemies for himself. And this is the sort of a thing that's happening. They're both trying to move away from oil-based. They're trying to be more taxation revenue-based economy and have made have had some successes at that. But yet here comes U.S. and its own foreign policy and is again creating the tension that makes it difficult for the reformists inside Iran to implement the reforms that they were doing. So, you know, I think that these people would should have been encouraged by the U.S. government because they're pro-free pro market and they want to bring foreign direct investment to Iran and they want to integrate Iran into, into the political, into the global economy. And yet here we have people come in with like uh, people like Pompeo, 
people like uh, John Bolton, our national security uh, advisor, who are effectively trying to manufacture another con confrontation with Iran. So um, I heard a term today, the three Bs. Yes. Bolton and BB the and MBS. Four Bs. Right. And yeah. what role do these, the Rosencrantz and Guildensterns of this play, <laughs> exactly. tragedy play, is what is Israel's role in all of this? And um, uh, what do you think will happen as a result of their involvement? Because this is not just between the United States and Iran. Yes. There are many other players, including Russia right. and China, who have interest in Iran. Right. It's, it's made, it, it made it a very complicated puzzle because it's also created some unholy alliances in there uh, so that you basically have the Saudi Arabian government, which is as far as long as it's in control of the MBS and and some of the, his, his gangs, they have made an, an alliance with Israelis and the Likudniks in Israel. It's not necessarily everybody in Israel, mm -hmm. but it's the far right of Israel. Right. The, there is an unholy alliance between them going on, and they have decided that Iran is their common enemy. And uh, they're, they're going to basically work against Iran and trying to diminish Iran's power in places like Syria and in places like, uh, like Lebanon. And uh, they have sponsored uh, these uh, basically uh, Salafi or Wahhabi extremist groups uh, that have been fighting uh, the government within Syria. And the government in Syria is a dictatorship and probably does not deserve to last. But then, uh, but its enemies are sometimes even worse than uh, worse than it. So it's uh, it it's so there is this power struggle that's been going on in that part of the western part of Asia. And it looks like now the ISIS and those guys are not going to be able to control that region uh, thanks to involvement of Iran and Russia in that part of the world. And now we are basically uh, stuck in a post-ISIS, post-Saddam Hussein, post-everything else Middle East. And that whole landscape has to be renegotiated. So you have all these countries that are like yeah, like Iraq and Syria and Lebanon that have very weak institutions. And we're not really quite sure which way they're going to uh, favor in terms of a global power system. And Iran and wants to have them lean a certain way. And Russia wants to have them lean a certain way. And Israel wants to have them lean a certain way. And Israel definitely does not want to see them be used as a base by Iran against Israel. So they're always attacking these military bases that Iranians have built in Syria by Revolutionary Guard. And they have attacked almost like 200 different sites. Uh, that And they have killed hundreds of members of the Revolutionary Guard in Syria. So there is all of this incredible power struggle going on. Supposedly, Iran and Russia were on one side, and Saudi Arabia and Israel were on the other side of all of this. But it's not this. so simple. But it's not saying. so simple now because no. now the Saudis are thinking about buying arms from the Russians, and Israelis have also been using Putin as uh, sometimes when they don't want to get into a heated confrontation in Syria with Iran, and it's come to some really hairy situation. They have used the Putin channel to communicate things to Iranians that. Listen, we can try to hit you over here, but we won't because 
we don't want to get into a big all-out war, so why don't you defuse the situation? So Putin is kind of become an in-between uh, Netanyahu and Rouhani and Khamenei <laughs> at the same time. So there is very, very complicated things going on. And now enter China into all of this because mm -hmm. China wants to protect its own interests in the Middle East and they see Iran as a potential ally. And same thing as the European Union, they see Iran as a critical uh, sort of a centerpiece for them to be able to be larger players in Western Asia, and they want that alliance. So, uh, so just like the European Union, they have decided that they may want to pay the political cost of opposing the United States, even when it comes to their trade policies, even when it comes to uh, avoiding sanctions, uh, or uh, uh, with, uh, but keep Iran on their side. So mm -hmm. the China situation and the trade issues, the media plays them as if they are strictly about trade issues between U.S. and China, but the Iran dimension of all of this and how the relationship between China and Iran and China and Russia play into all of this are a big part of the picture. Now, China is Iran's biggest trading partner. Exactly. So exactly. right there. And and yeah. if they if they have any chance of making that uh, that Silk Road uh, strategy that they have ever work, they need to have Iran on their side to be. They cannot really have that effective. Eurasian continent strategy mm -hmm. without Iran right. being a central player in all of that and to be on the good side of Iran. So that is a really a huge uh, uh, thing. And also another interesting thing has happened in the last few weeks that uh, Iran and India have started to really warm up in their relationships with each other. And Iran, there have been visits, they yeah, have high-level visits. Recently. And high-level vis visits. And then they also had high-level visits from Pakistan to Iran. Imran Khan was in Tehran just a couple of weeks ago. And they are now starting to um, basically open up the issue of the pipeline of peace for gas going through Pakistan to India because India is one of the biggest energy markets in the world. And Iran, along with Qatar, they have the second largest reserve uh, of uh, natural gas in the world. And the cheapest way to supply uh, India is through a pipeline to be built in Pakistan. This proposal has come up a couple of times in the last decade or so. But because of hostility between India and Pakistan and Saudis also sabotaging uh, the deal through the Pakistanis, have uh, that that and the talks have collapsed, but now it seems like Imran Khan is very serious about doing that, and Indians are getting serious, and Iran sees this as an opportunity to create greater economic integration between uh, between uh, Pakistan and India, and help the cause of peace in that region. So this is now all of a sudden this new. <laughs> initiative has taken hold. And what Iran did just a few months ago, which was really amazing, the the furthest eastern port that Iran has in the Arabian Sea, in the Oman Sea, is a port called Chahbahar, which is in the Iranian Baluchistan, just over the border from Pakistan. Iran basically created a free uh, freeze uh, economic free zone over there in Chabahar and has given the control of all of it to India 
And that Chabahar port is also connected to the Iranian railroad system, which connects to Central Asia and Europe. So Indians now, if they want to trade with uh, Central Asia, with Russia, or with Europe, they don't have to go through Pakistan anymore. They can just use Iranian ports as if it, as if they owned it, basically. So what you're saying, Nariman, is that um, Iran is too strategic to too many players to fail. Exactly. So, but now with this conundrum and the Revolutionary Guard now being um, identified as a terrorist organization with the United States, what's the way out? How can we climb out of this situation and and achieve peace and also prosperity for everyone in the region? Well, I think that the calmer heads have to prevail both here uh, in the United States in Washington, D.C., and also uh, in Iran. Uh, my hunch is that President Trump is not really interested in a war with Iran. That will be a reneging of his promises promises uh, as a as a candidate when he ran for president. I agree. Uh, mm-hmm. And he, I think, I think he is genuinely a person interested in peace. But yes, he has a personality that leads to bluster, and I think some of his uh, advisors use that as a as a leverage to uh, put pressures on on. Some some countries, and some of them may actually want war against his wishes. Uh, but it looks he's not, like... He's not George Bush, though, I don't think. <laughs> exactly. Who, yeah, who was coming off of it 9-11. Could, yeah, yeah. We, we, yeah. Maybe we could engage into a psychological analysis of this mm-hmm. president, which i rather not do, but I really, I take him at his word when he said that he was against uh, the wars in Iraq, and, and I, I think he was genuine about that, uh, and he really meant that, and I don't think he wants to leave uh, with a legacy of having started another war. Uh, but he would like to get a better deal from Iranians. And if he can use Bolton and Pompeo to uh, do some saber rattling and get Iranians into the negotiating table and get a better deal than what the JCPOA was, uh, well, then, you know, maybe that will have to do. And today there was an interesting development. Uh, the member, uh, the chairman of the parliament, the foreign relations committee in the Majlis in the Iranian parliament, also floated the idea of having negotiations with the United States. And that is could be an interesting uh, development that we could uh, see where there may, there may be some sort of an engagement uh, between U.S. and Iran, maybe facilitated through people in Oman who are usually a good go between between U.S. and Iran. The Armenians are usually try, have tried to broker deals between U.S. and Iran, and now it looks like Japan may be getting into the game too, because kind mm-hmm. of Japan sees that the China is getting too much of a leg up on. On Iran, and they want to also have some leverage on Iran. And yesterday, Foreign Minister Zari flew to Tokyo right. to meet <laughs> to meet with mm-hmm. Abe. So this is really fascinating thing going on. All the great powers of the world, basically, everybody from uh, from uh, U.S. to uh, from the European Union to uh, to China to Japan to Russia, they're all getting into this brokering deal between U.S. and Iran. The only one that seems to be left out of it is Brazil. <laughs> and the other, everybody else is in this game, and it just seems like it's very, very strategic uh, sort of a calculus that they're all engaged in that they don't want to see Iran involved in a war with the United States and they want to somehow settle this issue down. So um, it's so you're really saying that you think war is doubtful? 
What kind yes. of percentage would you put on the likelihood of, of a war breaking out because of maybe accidental or these other ancillary players doing something that would provoke it? it I, w- I would small. say less than 10%. Less than I would 10%. Say, I would say less than 10% if I had to put a number to it. Uh, I mean, it's not really scientific, but it's just of more of a hunch. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really, I think that uh, the United States is... Uh, uh, is probably going to back off because also we have to remember another thing, the people who are going to have to pull the trigger. You know, I said that the Revolutionary Guard guys were the guys who are probably two years ago, they were making a calculus about how to get foreign direct investment from the United States to to Iran. On the other side of it too, when you have to look at the the rank and file in the Pentagon, the professional uh, soldiers that we have and the generals, they don't want to get into a war with Iran either because they are the ones who are navigating every day through the Persian Gulf and through the Strait of Hormuz. Right. And they are in daily communication with the military Iranian Navy and the Revolutionary Guard Navy. And sometimes they have even been openly making statements thanking Mm-hmm. the Iranian authorities in the Iranian military to collaborating with them and allowing for safe passage. So these are guys who are communicating with each other every day. And now we're asking them to go to war against each other. I think some of them, on uh, probably many of them on both sides, are reluctant to get into, uh, get into a war with each other. And it sounds um, as if, too, um, the likelihood of regime change is not something that you're betting on in this environment is that would that be fair or do you think yeah, I, what are I, the internal pressures I, I mentioned the inflation and no, there is a lot of discontent in, in how's iran. that going to manifest exactly there is a lot of discontent in iran both on the economic side of things because of economic reasons and also the u.s sanctions uh, that have been part of it and also uh, a lot of people in iran you know that the economy has been mismanaged by many of the powerful people within Iran. There is all kinds of corruption charges. Let alone being sanctions. Fought. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. But I don't really think that uh, uh, there is real realistic chance of regime change within Iran because Iranian people are not, they, they, they are angry and they want love to complain about what's going on. But ultimately, they, have, they are tired of radical solutions. They have had a revolution, and it, the outcome didn't come out well, very well for them. They had a war with Iraq. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They have had a war with Iraq, and uh, almost half a million people died, and nothing good came out of it. Uh, so P- Iranian people are very cautious about radical solutions. They, they talk as if they're ready for a regime change, but ultimately when they have to go out there and do uh, and take, make that bet, they are not ready to make that bet. And they are basically going to complain and bitch about things, but ultimately go for gradual change, especially when the prospects for... Uh, gradual change are becoming more interesting these days. The Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei is getting up there in age. The succession process has started. Uh, the council that elects the next Supreme Leader, they are now, because he is officially recorded to have uh, cancer uh, and that he has um, uh, he, he he has been hospitalized for his uh, for his cancer. So he has been 
they're they're obligated legally to start a succession process, right. and they have had, have a search committee, and they're trying to figure that out. So uh, we could be in two years in the situation where Iran has to create have a, has to choose a new supreme leader, and God knows if that institution will even survive, where it may become a council, as the idea was floated before, and things could get watered down. That institution could be watered down in terms of its power. So. If that prospect for that sort of a gradual, peaceful change is there, it is very hard to convince Iranian people to go for a radical solution. As sick and tired as they are of the corruption and the repressive measures, there is some really positive things going on within Iran. Iranian women are going out to the streets and they're removing their hijabs off. Mm-hmm. And they're, they have, they're doing some really wonderful uh, wonderful things to ex- civil disobedience kinds of things. And the government is having to... Uh, be more relaxed on the enforcement of these hijab rules. And uh, some places in Iran, especially in the gallery districts, in the art districts you go these days, they're basically hijab-free zones. Hmm. You know, nobody even wears, bothers to wear the hijabs anymore. You know, the that little scarf to even pretend to be having that. There is also uh, interesting things going through the system, like FATF, which is financial accountability, something, uh, uh, it's, it's a sort of a, international piece of legislation that uh, harmonizes uh, the, your financial system so you can be more in terms of uh, make, makes making it harder for you to launder money and do all these other kinds of financial mischief, bringing it up to international standards in banking. That I could not believe that that piece of legislation was introduced within the Iranian parliament and it passed and the president has signed the deal and the supreme leader has signed off on it. And it's now within the expediency council to go through its last phase, but it's getting opposition from hardliners, from people, uh, some of the clerics who don't want their budgets for their seminaries to become transparent, and also some of the members of the Revolutionary Guard who run businesses that are not transparent. They are the ones who are resisting it, but they were on the losing side. They were almost lost it until President Trump pulled out of the JCPOA and created an atmosphere of crisis where those guys now have an excuse to say, we have suspended debate on this. Because of the crisis. But it's really one or two votes away. And if Iran passes that, basically gangster capitalism in Iran will die as a result of that. And European Union will have a free hand to basically supply Iran with all the financial help that it wants without without worrying about what the United States wants it to die to do or not to do. Until Iran has not signed the FATF, European Union is very limited as to what it can do for Iran. And what about in this atmosphere of um, inflation as well? What yes. about innovation in places like cryptocurrency and fintech? Is that going on or has that stopped because oh, of the, of that, the that sanctions? That is still going on because that a lot of, I don't know what the latest, uh, it's been a few months and I have not been there since the worst of this currency crisis has been going on. 
But when I was there a few more, a few months ago, uh, I was in touch with some people who were uh, involved in these innovation incubators. Some of them get even supported from the presidential budget, from the executive branch budget directly. So they don't even have to go through the parliament for their budgets. There is an incubator that called, that's called uh, Center for Knowledge-Based Projects, uh, Donish Bunyad, Projoy Donish Bunyad, they call it. And uh, those are uh, get supported by the by the president. Those people are still there. There's they're they're working on everything from biotech to information technology, uh, to uh, to cryptocurrencies and uh, and uh, nanotechnology projects. Some really interesting developments. And there is a lot of projects that are ripe for bringing up to the international level for venture funding or for even doing IPOs. That not because of the sanctions cannot happen. But at some point, I think we're going to be really pleasantly surprised by what will come out of Iran. And as far as I can tell, those projects were being uh, supported with Iranian currency. They had not really brought them out where the foreign access to foreign currency was a critical issue. But for them to get to the next phase, they need to be internationalized. They need to be globalized. So that will be the next thing to do. And that is still going on. Well, that's a, a ho- very hopeful scenario. Absolutely, is what Absolutely. you're painting. Yeah, and what are, what are the black swans that you can imagine? I I know that Iran is in the middle of an enor- enormous earthquake zone, and I had heard before that in Tehran, in particular, there weren't preparations for this, but now that's a new mandate of the of the mayor of Tehran. Has that changed? Yeah, there is a very interesting new mayor of Tehran. Tehran recently had its own city, uh, city council elections and almost every seat in the city council was won by either uh, moderates or reformists. So mm. there is really a very fascinating development going on in the city council and the new mayor has a lot of initiatives. They're almost like looking at this sort of a lack of preparation for a for uh, for earthquake uh, sort of for resistant uh, buildings as an upper as an economic opportunity mm. to basically update buildings to do these green real estate developments to come up with new proposals for uh, for everything from uh, green space to park space to cultural institutions being developed. They even have built a fascinating new mosque right across from the city theater uh, to Ashtarshad which when you were in Tehran might have mm. been, uh, the, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting building, a circular building where the main theater company uh, of Tehran was placed in there and has a really beautiful park around it, which later on be, kind of became, during the Islamic uh, Republic, became famous as the gay hangout within oh. Tehran. And on the other side of the gay hangout, they have built a very modern looking mosque that has no merits or anything in it. And it's basically a very liberal, well, reform, reformist congregation that's uh, that's there, and people and some of the conservative people and the fundamentalists are up in arms about all of this. That you know why is and you know this is one of the new things that the Tehran mayor is doing. You know, let's build a modern-looking mosque right across from the gay spot. This is this is new. Now, speaking of elections, when is the next uh, election in Iran? Presidential level election. 
next presidential election will be on 2021, basically, okay. uh, in the summer of 2021 uh, and May of 2021 and with inauguration. Two in years August, from now. Two years from now, exactly. So, uh, and the race is already on and uh, we will see what the, what the, what the interest, uh, developments with the candidates are. So last question, Ariman, if uh, you were appointed as advisor to President Trump, <laughs> what would you tell him? What would your counsel be? Uh, my counsel would be to de-escalate the tension right now and engage Iran, but still drive a tough bargain uh, against uh, the Islamic Republic because uh, being tough against Iran at some level in negotiations forces internal reforms in Iran. So it's not uh, uh, a but, uh, but get away from this uh, war rhetoric, uh, but really hold Iran accountable to its human rights record uh, improving and also to create more transparency within its own economy so it can be more ripe for foreign direct investment from the American institutions. Nariman Safavi, thank you so much for your commentary about Iran. I think this has given us a very rich portrait of what's happening today. Um, much, uh, I think, less superficial than what's being portrayed in the media. So thank you, everyone, for thank joining you. us. Thank you. It's a privilege mm -hmm. to be here.